believe that 7 through 11 should be added uh, in fact, as far as even preaching to verses 1 through 6, but for the sake of, uh, for the sake of giving me time to kind of work through each of those, I, I split those up. Uh, as I shared Sunday morning, uh, you shouldn't view this letter in, as seven different or five different letters. Uh, this is one letter. Uh, the continuity of thought from James is, is, is the same from the beginning until the end of this letter. So every, every new, new subject or every new chapter is related to what he's already saying. And there's, there's an underlying uh, message uh, that he's preaching to us in this letter. Uh, and I do believe you'd be fair to say it really is practical Christianity. Uh, and it's really, uh, it's, really it's really trying in many ways to, to any who would uh, as I sh shared in the prayer there, conceptualize the Christian faith and leave it in that realm. Uh, it's, it's more than that. Uh, we, do, we do need to th think about the theological concepts involved, but they have to take root somewhere and produce a life uh, that is consistent with the Christian faith. And that's where James really comes to us tonight. He kind of returns to uh, some comments in regards to the rich. He's already spoken to that one time in regards to the sin of partiality in chapter two, uh, saying, uh, reminding those who were showing the favoritism within the church towards the wealthy and pushing the poor away. So he's already uh, reminded them, is it not the rich who drag you into the court? So I'm not sure if there were a, a contingent of wealthy folks in the church that were causing conflict or a conflict was surrounding or if he was speaking of the wealthy outside the church who would uh, in many ways exploit those in the church. I suppose to some degree you could, you could, have, you could be in both. Uh, if it was fashionable maybe for rich people in a community to be involved in the church, uh, maybe they were in the church. And one thing I would say here is he's not, he's not condemning wealth. Uh, there, there are people who are very wealthy, who are very faithful and, and they use their wealth in ways that would honor God. And, and so I don't think you should put it in a basket and say, well, he's condemning all rich people, so therefore let's all be poor or let's all not, uh, you know, not achieve anything or pursue anything in this life and prosper from that. That's not at all what he's saying. In fact, I think he's saying more in regards to these people rich, as he calls them, in terms of how they gain their wealth. And that's where the real heart of what he's saying is. So let's begin in chapter five, verse one, and we'll read. Uh, I'm gonna read for the sake of reading through 11, but we'll just look at verses one through six. But he says, now come now you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been with you, withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the produce, precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. 
Do not complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spake in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealing, that the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. He goes on for further exhortations there, but uh, I want to stop there. So I'm just looking uh, under several headings. You can write these down if you write these, but this is kind of the way I divided these up. But there's a forecasted misery involved here, a deceptive pursuit, and by abusive means, receiving unexpected consequences, and the day which exposes it all. And so that's kind of the, what I'm looking at. So in the forecasted misery, you see that mainly in verse 1. You can see some of it in verse 4 as well. But notice here, it's to the rich. Uh, I think again that he's speaking here to those who, whose gain came by exploitation uh, and immoral, if you will, means. So he's not categorizing all the rich as this. <coughs> he has a, a, very, a very specific folks, uh, rich folks group in mind who have gained what they've gained by exploitation. The rich here. Uh, secondly, it is the certainty of that as well, this forecasted misery. Notice the way he says that. Uh, Come now, you rich, weep and howl your miseries for your miseries which are coming upon you. So that's a, that's a present tense. He's saying, rich, you rich who are, he goes on to say how you got this wealth, you rich, weep and howl. That's present. Do that now. And then he says, for the things that are coming. And so there's, there's something in that that says that the forecast of this misery that's coming upon them is certain. So certain, in fact, that he is, his ad, admonition is that they should now, in the present, because of what is certain to come, begin to weep and to howl. And those words are intense. I mean, that's a, that's a, I think he means to communicate there the, great, the greatness and the depth of the misery that's coming upon you. And he's going to explain why that is later, but that's how he introduces this section. Weeping and howling, that howling especially, that speaks to me of the groaning of the utter uh, terror of pain. I remember years ago when we were at construction, we were doing, you may know the story, they called it the Hilltop Store down on 21 down towards Mooresville. And we were building that little service station there. And there was a farm back behind there. And we were just working away. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, I heard this most horrifying, guttural scream you've ever heard in your life. It, it, it shook me to the core. And it was all the way across the field. And what had happened was an 18-year-old had raised a dump truck, dump truck bed up against power lines. And his dog was running around the truck. Well, he stepped out of the truck to keep the dog from getting shocked. And when he stepped out of the truck and had his hands on the, the truck rail, when he hit the ground, they, they estimated that 24,000 volts went through his body. And his dad was standing by watching him attached to the truck being electrocuted. And that guttural horror sound that I heard was that father's groaning. And he came running across the field screaming for help. That's the idea that I get when I hear this. So, so horrible and so, so dangerous a place were these rich that he's saying to them, for the misery coming upon you, for the thing that is certain to come to your life, weep and howl like that. 
That's the seriousness of what he's about to say. It's not just a general call for repentance. He says, come now, consider this, as we shared in the last message. Come now, evaluate yourselves as rich men and the way that you've gained your riches. And for what's coming upon you in regards to that, weep and howl now. Don't wait till then. It's coming. It's not upon you yet, but it is as good as upon you. Weep and howl now. So that's a forecasted misery here. You're speaking of the certainty of it, but also the intensity of it as well with that weeping and howling. It's also a deceptive pursuit that they've been after. Verse 3, he says there, your gold and silver have rusted. Verse 2, your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Uh, in verse 5 as well, he mentions there, you have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. It's interesting, the gold and silver was their treasure. What really struck me about that is your riches have rotted and your garments have, have, have rotted away, have been moth-eaten. So it was a deceptive pursuit. You were pursuing these riches and you were amassing to yourself gold and treasure and, and garments and luxurious garments and you lived a life of luxury and you believed that this was a justifiable life, but your riches have been deceived. They have deceived you. You thought one thing, but your riches have, your pursuit of these riches have produced another thing altogether, which is the misery that's coming upon you. So weep and, and howl and wail at what's coming upon you. Isn't it true how deceptive those, that pursuit of wealth is? I mean, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy that the, that the pursuit or the love of money is a root of all sorts of all kinds of evil. It's that love and that pursuit and that lust for riches that is deceptive because if you gain some, they make your life more comfortable in the, in the temporal sense. You have plenty to eat and you have nice things to wear and you have transportation and you have great lodging and warm and, and luxurious lodging and everything about gaining wealth satisfies every inclination and lust of the flesh. And it's deceiving because it's satisfying and, and we're so fallen in our natures that so long as the flesh is satisfied, we believe we're going along just fine. That is the deception. That is the deception. In fact, uh, I think it was Rockefeller one time, you remember the quote, someone asked him how much money was, uh, was necessary, how much money could a man need, and he said one dollar more than I have. The pursuit of wealth will never be satisfied. It's deceptive because if you can just get that little bit more, you'll be satisfied. But then you get it, you adjust your lifestyle up to that plateau, you look around, somebody's higher than you, you want more, and you keep climbing the ladder. It's deceptive. And so it has been for these people as well. Their gold and silver and treasure, they were living luxurious, a life of wanton pleasure. Whatever I want, I have the wealth and the resources to provide for every inclination of my carnality or my carnal flesh. Whatever I want, I can have. Uh, I couldn't help but thinking today as I was going through this text again about the corruption that's in our world today. Uh, particularly in our government, 
A man takes a public servant role, stays there a number of years, comes out a multimillionaire on a, on a $100,000 or $200,000 salary a year. I don't know how you get to be a multimillionaire and have properties all over the United States in luxurious areas if you're not doing something <coughs> un <coughs> unworthy or something perhaps unethical, if not illegal altogether. How, how much this passage applies to that. The pursuit of wealth, the pursuit of this is a deceptive pursuit and they were definitely deceived. In fact, the implication in this passage seems to be that they, they were completely oblivious to what, they were, what was coming their way. In fact, James is calling them out. Come now, you weep and howl. Do that now. It's urgent because what you have reaped as a pursuit and your pursuit of wealth is coming upon you. And it is not the luxurious life of wanton pleasure that you've been living. You have been deceived by your wealth, by your pursuit of wealth. Just a word of exhortation, particularly for our young folks. And be careful with, with wealth. Be careful with the pursuit of it. I, I think his passage he spoke of just before this, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will go to this place or that place, work a year and make a profit. You need to be mindful of the Lord's will. There may be, there may be an actual uh, income level the Lord wants for you. You ever think about that? I'm, I'm pretty sure he didn't, he never intended for me to be a multimillionaire. He didn't give me the brain for it. He didn't give me the gifts for it. He didn't give me any of those things. So I'm content to be where I am uh, just as long as I'm pursuing him. So it is a deceptive pursuit. Notice as well that it was a pursuit uh, by abusive means. There was exploitation and even murder. In verse 4, you see that. He says, behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your field and that which has been withheld by you cries against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. So they, so they had exploited their employees. They had, they had withheld their pay, whether that was fully or if they held back what was a fair wage in that day and they were, went away satisfied that they got a minimum wage of some sort. Whatever the case was, however it fleshed out, they were gaining their wealth upon the backs of those who were mowing and even harvesting the crops that they sold. Yeah, I, I always wondered why it is that companies want to make money off the backs of their employees and not charge the public for the product they make. Let the public pay for the product it wants. But they, they end up coming down and, and, and dropping down the benefits for the employee to increase their profit margin. They charge a little more in the public and they give a little less to get it made and pretty soon their profits are growing. This is what these people were doing and in spades. They may have been withholding all of it and said, wait till the harvest comes in, we'll give you your pay. In fact, the Old Testament says not to withhold the pay. Clearly in Leviticus, do not, do not withhold the laborer's wage. If he works a day, pay him for the work. Don't withhold that. He's dependent upon that. He's not a rich man like you are. He may have to pay his bills. He may actually have to buy his family's meal for that evening with those wages. Do not withhold the wages. But this man, these men, these rich have, have exploited their own labor to become even more rich. They've held back their money. In fact, he says in verse 4 as well, there was condemnation and 
really execution of the righteous. Verse six, he says, you have condemned and put to death the righteous man. In contrast, he doesn't resist you. Not only maybe he be, he's doing that as a matter of faith, but he may be doing that as a matter of capacity. He can't buy the judges. He can't buy it. He can't afford an attorney. You take his pay, you exploit him, you do him unjustly, but he has no spokesman that can come ahead for him and speak for him or fight for justice for his wages. He has nobody to do that. So you abuse him, and not only that, you even execute him. If he was to come up against you or refuse to work or whatever, you're involved with his execution. And to make it worse, while all that's going on, you fattened up your own hearts. You're indifferent to the suffering around you, and particularly the suffering of the poor. So not only were they rich, but they had gained it by abusive means and exploitation and even to the extent of murder. And so this is not someone who got educated and made a product and sold the product and became multimillionaires just through hard work and dedication and study and education. This is someone who went out and exploited his fellow man and made a profit on their back and all the while that they were suffering, completely indifferent to that, he was fattening up his own heart, living luxurious and large. And even while he held their pay back. So there was a forecasted misery, a deceptive pursuit by abusive means. But then there was a receiving. There was a receiving now of these unexpected consequences. And you see that in verse 2 and 3. And then also in 5. You say there, your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. These are things that you, you obtain by your wealth. Your riches and your treasure and all those garments you're wearing. Well, they've rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted. And their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. In verse 5, you live luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. So they, this pursuit of wealth by these abusive means had un, unthinkable and hidden consequences to them. They weren't aware of this. They were pursuing these things and as they brought them things to themselves, all these things to themselves and they built their bank accounts and they put on their fine clothes and all the things, they thought they had it made. They looked around and the whole world was to be exploited and was at their footstool to, to lend itself to them getting richer and richer and more comfortable and more comfortable and more luxurious, all the while completely oblivious to the consequences that had come upon them. And now here they are. He speaks of these as present tense, but but he's also saying this is the thing that's coming. So you can imagine that these rich persons were looking around and they were saying, well, I don't see that. My, my garments look fine. I, my gold's just fine. Still in the bank. I got plenty. I can go out tomorrow and buy up the whole field and all the laborers all together. What are you talking about, James? Well, he speaks of this with a certainty that this is the consequences, even if in your pursuit of your wealth, you are blinded to them. This is the reality involved in that. It was interesting to me in verse 1 as well when he says to them, or verse 2, he says, your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. And I thought about those things, those two things as representative of his power and authority and even his glory. The gold would have been the wealth. 
That would have been his wealth, and his wealth would have been his power in the community, and his garments that he purchased would be reflective of his authority and power in the community. The thing that, the thing that most represented the glory and power and authority of the rich man, he says, has rotted and become moth-eaten. That's the consequences. You thought gaining these things and rising in power and authority and influence in your community would set you atop a mountain that you would never be moved from. But the consequences that you did not see and were deceived about was the fact that those things are no longer going to protect you. You're not hid out now on some tower somewhere guarded from consequences. Judgment has come and misery is coming. And all the things that you are trusting in to make you secure in this world are as nothing, rotten and moth-eaten. Your glory is nothing now. Not in the day that's coming. Not in these last days. Not in this day of slaughter. And that was stunning. It is also unthinkable, but it bears witness. In verse 3, he says there that your gold and silver is rusted. I don't know if you've ever caught this before, but it struck me this time going through the book of James, but I thought to myself, well, wait a minute, gold and silver don't rust. Metal rust, gold and silver generally don't rust. In fact, I looked that up. It'll tarnish. You can clean it up, but it don't rust. It don't build up flakes uh, like metal does. It don't build up and flake off and deteriorate away. It just gets moldy and it gets green and it, gets, it, gets, it just gets in bad shape, but you can actually clean it up and polish it. But he says of them, the gold and silver, which normally don't rust, are rusted. Now that meant possibly two things. Possibly it was the indication that the gold and silver was not pure. It was diluted. It wasn't, it wasn't as pure as you think it was. And if you think about the way they gained their wealth, symbolically their wealth wasn't pure. It was, it was gained by exploitation and murder, and therefore it's dirty money, as it were. So in one way, he may have been saying there, your gold and your silver have rusted. They have demonstrated themselves as full of impurity and defiled by the means by which you came to possess those things. Or he could simply mean they were worthless to this man altogether. They were defiled by the, your manner of obtaining it, and it was your, and your lustful use of that gold. And so he could be speaking to that as well. The thing I'm thinking about here is what they thought was unthinkable and impossible, he says, is possible. My pursuit of wealth was to get me the things that would secure me and make me unapproachable by anyone, solid, standing strong. Everything you thought this would get you got you the opposite of that. Not only are you not standing strong and firm, you're in a fragile place. You're not locked in some high tower because all of your authority and glory is going to be diminished. No, your gold that you thought would never rust and would be here forever wasn't pure. It was defiled by the means which you obtained it by or it was just proved itself useless to accomplish for you what you thought it would. Those are serious consequences from their pursuit of wealth. He was witnessing its impurity there, but as well... He says here there was a witness in regards to this of the pay of the laborers. Notice as well that he says here, your gold and silver have rusted in verse 3. 
And their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. So when this day comes, that, that pursuit of that gold and its useless to you in that moment will intensify the fires of, intensify the fires of judgment. You will be all the more agitated because the thing you thought would secure you from it is actually the thing it contributed to it. And now there's multiple or doubled the fires of judgment upon you, doubling your misery. That's what he's saying. Your gold that you got by these ill means has rusted and the rust of your gold itself will be a testimony against you and cause your suffering to be even more intensified because you set that gold up to accomplish something that it was never going to accomplish. And the day is coming for you to do that. In verse 4, behold, notice here he says, the pay of the laborers who mowed your field and which has been withheld cries out against you. Pay cries out. Not them, but he, he signifies here the pay that, they, that you withheld cries out to you. It's in your bank account. It was owed them. You never gave it to them. And now this day has come upon you and your misery is coming upon you. And, sc- and screaming out from your bank account is going to be the words, guilty, guilty, guilty. That's what, that's what I think he's saying there. The pay, the pay that you ought to have given them is still in your possession. And it declares your guilt in the, in the, in the last day or in these last days. And again, intensifies your suffering. You withheld it. And you thought you had gained the advantage by doing so. But it seems as though you have lost the advantage But because by withholding that pay, although they went without it and suffered without it in a temporal sense, you're going to be suffering eternally and that's going to be bearing witness against you along with that big stack of rusted gold that, that is useless to you and relieving you in that moment. This is why he said to begin with weep and howl for the misery coming upon you. You're sitting in a fine place right now and you think you are untouchable and you are comfortable comfortable, and you are living in luxury and wanting pleasure. And all the while, all around you, people are being exploited. The poor may even be dying from starvation. They are, they are suffering in so many ways. You're even putting them to death and they have no capacity whatsoever at all to resist you, nor do they have, or, or maybe they have the faith to not resist you and submit to the Lord under those circumstances. That's their testimony. Your testimony is everything opposite of that and all of it screams out your guilt in this day so weep and howl notice in verse 4 as well but the suffering that you have inflicted has essentially gone up to the Lord of Sabaoth the word Sabaoth there means the Lord of the host or the Lord of armies you and all your might and all your wealth and authority and all the luxury that you lived in and your withholding and your deeds now has produced suffering in your laborers, the harvesters. And they've cried out and they're suffering. They're hungry. They can't meet their obligations. Their families are suffering. And they've cried out to God. And he says, listen, that cry came up to the Lord of armies. I love that he says that. You want to talk about power and authority, you thought some gold and some fine garments set you apart in your society as a God that you could hand down your edicts and put other people and exploit and make other people your own possessions. Well, guess what? The people you harmed, prayers went up to the God of the universe 
to whom all of the gold and all the resources and all the world and all the universe belongs. Now he's got an ear and he has an army. And that army's bringing this day someday weep and howl, he's saying to them. Notice as well in verse 5, these unexpected consequences. But he says they had fattened their hearts. This is stunning. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Uh, Some commentators think he's talking about the coming judgment. It speaks often of that day as a slaughter of the wicked. Uh, Some people believe, and I'm inclined this way to believe, that he's speaking about while this slaughter of, the, of those under you were, was happening and people were dying and wages were being withheld and suffering was there and prayers were going up to God to relieve them from their suffering. And all the days of that slaughter contrast that with the fact that you were fattening up your own heart. You were living large. You looked down your nose and looked away at those with less than you and you just got fatter and fatter and more comfortable and more comfortable and you just kept pushing yourself right up that ladder until you got so high that you didn't even notice anybody anymore. And you were even contributing to the killing of these people and they didn't have the capacity or the wherewithal to even resist you. And all this while you were fattening up your own heart with all the pleasures and gratifying every lust of the flesh. You see the contrast here? Now, that's why I said, I don't know if this was people within the church. It seems almost unthinkable or if it was part of the context of the society that they were living in. There would definitely be a temptation in the church, especially in these provinces, to provide for your family, certainly. But how much provision is enough? How, how much compromise would you need to make to make the business connections in the community so that you might prosper more and more? And if you make the right connections, you can make a little more money. And you finally realize, hey, if I can make more connections, I might be able to rise to the level of some of the local businessmen. And pretty soon the man who began in the church because of the pursuit of lust and, and, and of wealth has moved now from the church over into this category of people. Maybe that's who he's speaking to. And maybe that's what he's warning them about. I don't know, I thought about this, I don't know that any of us would be that explicit in pursuing wealth, but I wondered, just for point of application, how it would, how it would sound or how it would land if we were willfully participating in some sort of business that was causing this effect in the lives of someone that we didn't see. I think personally of all the goods that we buy from China, the overwhelming majority of which is made by slave labor. They're exploiting children and labor and we're buying up goods. And I I get granted, I know it's hard to go to the store and not find something that wasn't bought in China. But, but at some point, will we be held accountable? You were want, living in wanton pleasure. You had everything you could get on Amazon. All you had to do was type it in, bang, it's at your door the next day. You were living a life of wanton pleasure and completely oblivious to the children being persecuted and laboring to produce the very goods that are making you happy. I think about the lottery. 
Uh, the, one, of the, one of the main reasons I don't, I don't play and never will play in the lotteries or gambling like that is because it exploits the, the base nature of fallen man, his greed. It promises them something for minimal investment. And people all over are doing it. People are falling into gambling addictions, causing their families to go without. They began that thing in North Carolina as a way to help the schools. And as quick as everybody got hooked, they, they canceled that and started distributing it as they went. You have to wonder if somebody's not getting rich because you sure are not. But my main reason for not doing that is because the exploitation it does. Maybe I'm fine with buying a ticket, but because it's in the, in the process, there are people who are not fine with buying a ticket. They have to buy another ticket and another ticket, and pretty soon they're starving their children, they're hungry, and they're not paying their bills because they're trying to hit that one big number that they're never going to hit. So if you're playing the lottery and keeping in place such a thing, are you contributing in some way to the suffering of another as a means of gaining wealth for yourself? So there's a lot of points of application here. Do we, do we patronize businesses that we know are involved in things that are destroying lives? Uh, I, won't, I won't drink Starbucks coffee. I don't want Starbucks coffee because they're involved in so many of the things that I stand in this pulpit and say that Christians ought not to be for. So I'm not going to go give them $5 for a cup of coffee that's so strong I can't hardly drink it. Uh, so they can fund those efforts. So I'll try to find coffee somewhere else. But I have to be careful. You look around, like I said, everything you're invested in. I thought recently I heard something about Procter & Gamble. Just basic stuff. Soap. Toothpaste, and you, you read all the things they're supportive of, and you're thinking, my goodness, I'm going to have to do like granny and start making a lye soap and use uh, ashes for toothpaste or something because everybody's got their hands in all sorts of corrupt stuff. But here's the message James gives. You're fattening up your heart in the day of slaughter. You're doing what you're doing in the last days. And we are in the last, I believe, of the last days. You're doing that right before the King of uh, the, the Lord of Sabaoth comes back, the return of Christ. You are fattening up your hearts in the day of slaughter, in the last days, and all these things are going to be testifying or witnesses against you. So before we exclude ourselves from this text as one of those, well, I don't have slaves. I'm not filthy rich. I don't wear, I'm not living in wanton pleasure. I'm getting by. Before we dismiss ourselves so easily, just remember that greed is not exclusive to wealthy people. Greed, greed in fact, sometimes is prevalent in the folks who are not so wealthy because they want to be wealthy. And so this message, I think, applies to us in the fact of be on guard against our greed and certainly make an honest living. Do not exploit others to make your living. I was reading an article today uh, in relation to this, but it had to do with the business world. And they were bringing this application into the office building. And they were talking about people gaining ground in the office by exploiting or pushing off on someone else some responsibilities for some mistake in the process. I remember even working construction. You'd find some goofy mistake that nobody should have ever made. And it amazed me how many people would blame it on one another. Well, it wasn't me. Wouldn't be. I, I remember one time specifically, I sat there and I was cutting in a piece of decking around the I-beam. We was putting, on, putting decking down for concrete. 
And I sat there, took all my measurements, did all my cutting, got this thing perfectly, and went and laid it over there, and it was on the wrong side of the sheet. And I had a buddy who was standing there watching me the whole time, and he said, I could have told you that before I, I wanted to say, well, why didn't you? <laughs> you wanted to make me look like an idiot, and so you could climb the ladder. Well, he can't be a supervisor. He can't even lead a crew. He don't even know how to cut a piece of decking. I've cut millions of pieces of decking, it seemed like. But he was satisfied to let me make an error so he could exploit the error and get the upper hand on me as far as to the boss man. How often does that stuff go on in the workplace? Very often. Hope tells me stories sometimes about working in the cafeteria and, and how, how there's this jockeying around to see he's going to get to do the least for the most money. <clears throat> and it seems to me like that's the ethic today. How little can I do and how much can I make for doing it? Uh, that's, that's not the ethic that James is speaking of. That's exploitation. One of the things I wanted to say here, well, how was the faithful acting in those days? And he says that, I think, and that does touch on me, touch to me the idea of faith because it says, you have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. And I wondered if that was because he didn't have the capacity or because he trusted in the Lord. The faithful man could not, did not need to resist you, could not resist you, practically speaking, but would not resist you because there was somebody in his heart greater than you. In other words, this rich man wasn't sovereign Lord over my life. He doesn't, he doesn't have the final word. He has the temporal word and it's caused me to suffer. But there is one beyond him and there is a greater reward ahead of me. So therefore, I can, I can stand back and, and submit, as it were, to the abuse of this rich man because I have a greater hope. Guess what the rich man had? Nothing. He had everything the world had to offer. But in the last day, he don't have anything. The righteous man had nothing. He didn't have any money to get an attorney. He couldn't buy off a judge. He couldn't bribe somebody. He had to submit, practically speaking, but he chose to submit because he was trusting in the greater Lord. And what does he have at the end of the day, at the last day? He has an eternal reward. He's a co-heir with Christ. You had it all here. You have nothing there. He had nothing here. He has it all over there in the last day. That's what I think James is encouraging the church here. Beware of the pursuit of wealth and the greed that will cause that and count on the greater wealth of a relationship with Christ and an eternity with Christ. We don't have to be unethical to, be, to, to have God's provision in this world. And I think that's, that's something that really needs to be heard in our day because I hear, I hear it in terms sometimes, even from otherwise decent people, you got to beat them at their own game, things like that. If they're going to exploit people, then you have to exploit people. You just do it with a little more morality than they're doing it. But we're all still doing the same thing. We're manipulating and exploiting others and, and climbing our way up the social ladder on the backs of whoever we can outdo or excel. I think James is speaking to us in the same context here again. Brothers, these things ought not to be. So that's his warning. So stand with me tonight. Uh, if you take that passage and read it and just, just watch the news tonight with the Bible open and reading that passage and look at, look at the corruption, not everywhere. I mean everywhere. 
And there's so many people involved and the corruption is so deep that you can't even get to the truth anymore because if they tell the truth, it exposes them. And if they, if they get exposed, 15 other people get exposed and the whole, the whole thing comes crumbling down. So everybody has a vested interest in lying about what they've been involved in. And who's the recipients of the, of the suffering caused by that? Regular folks just trying to feed their families. Uh, those who don't, can't afford a seen today they were doing a GoFundMe page for somebody and um, they were expecting their attorney fees to be in excess of a million dollars. And there's no way they could pay that. They got a nine to five job. And were it not for people contributing to that defense fund, they'd have, they'd have a court appointed lawyer uh, in court. Uh, they can't, they can't resist you. They can't resist you. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the warning in regards to the pursuit of riches, the love of money, as Paul says to Timothy. It is the root of all sorts and all kinds of evil. Lord, we recognize that money and gold and silver are simply minerals. They're of uh, the earth. And they are of no more value than that which we assign to them. But Father, they are of little value when eternity comes. We will not stand in judgment in regards to how much we made or, what, or, or how big our bank account was or how many possessions we had. We will come in to give account to you for what we did with our lives, whether we honored you, whether we loved you with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and our neighbor as ourselves. And so, Father, help us to be mindful and where we can, Father, withdraw from businesses and activities that exploit others for profit. And Father, we realize we live in a world today that it would be almost impossible to do that completely. But Lord, help us to be at least mindful of that, that we might not be classified with these who live luxurious lives and wanting pleasure on the backs of the sufferings of others. So Father, help us to hear the warning. Father, help us as well to, to hear the truth that the faithful are secure in Christ. We have an inheritance in Christ, untouchable and eternal and we thank you for that great gift. Bless those who've come tonight, Father. Again, we lift those in prayer that we've mentioned already and ask that you be with them in a very special way this week. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.